0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malih Razouzan
1: and I am Mira Nabulsi.
0: This week, we speak with U.S.-based Tunisian scholar Muhammad Hammami about the upcoming presidential elections in Tunisia and the country's serious socio-economic problems. Stay with us.
1: Almost nine years after its Jasmine revolution, which precipitated a chain reaction of revolts in the Arab world, Tunisia is seen as the only one among the 10 countries directly impacted by the Arab Spring to have succeeded in establishing a formal democracy and as such has been accepted into the world's club Of democratic countries it is now poised for its third round of presidential elections since the 2010 2011 revolution however with a weak economy and an increasingly restive population struggling with poverty and being surrounded by countries that are politically unstable with a continuing violent Islamist movement nipping on its heels And the very notion of liberal democracy in serious jeopardy worldwide, how long can Tunisia maintain the trappings of a formal democracy if it does not at the same time alleviate the serious socioeconomic problems that afflict its society? Today we pose these questions to U.S.-based Tunisian scholar Mohamed Hammami, who spoke to us from his home in Tunis. Please note that one day after this interview was recorded last week, media mogul Nabil Karawi, who is one of the major candidates for the presidency, was arrested in Tunis on money laundering and tax evasion charges, stemming from a 2016 accusation by the anti-corruption watchdog iWatch. The candidate for the secular heart of Tunisia party is seen as a populist, running his campaign against Tunisia's elites despite his own status as one of Tunisia's richest and most powerful people. Mr. Karawi and his brother Ghazi had their assets frozen and were ordered to remain in Tunisia. Despite his arrest, Mr. Qarawi's presidential ambitions remain undimmed. Speaking through his lawyers on Monday, he urged his supporters to maintain momentum and make their intentions known at the ballot box on September 15. Should he win, Mr. Qarawi could theoretically be elected president of Tunisia from one of the countries. Prisons. Mr. Qarawi's supporters and the television network he owns accuse his bitterest rival, current Prime Minister Youssef Shahid, of complicity in his arrest. Now we turn to Khadija's interview with U.S.-based Tunisian scholar Mohamed Hammami.
2: Mohamed, the president of Tunisia, Beji Qayt subsi died on July 25th. Prior to his death, the elections had been planned for 17 24 november but as a result of his death they were brought forward in order to ensure that the new president would take office within 90 days as required by the constitution so the elections are scheduled to take place in tunisia on september 15th if no candidate receives a majority of the vote then a runoff election will be no later than november 3rd this election will be the second direct presidential election since 2011, and the first one organized by the Independent High Authority
3: for Elections. It's the third election organized by the High Independent, is, is the High the Independent third... uh, Commission was, yes, the, third, the High Independent Commission organized the 2011 com- election, was headed by uh, by uh, Kemal Jandubi, and then the 2014 election by, it was headed by Sar Saran, now this is the third election. So this is the third time that the election is headed by this commission, but with different members.
2: So the electoral commission has approved 26 candidates, including two women to run in next month's presidential election.
3: Yes, and today the administrative tribunal gave the right to four other candidates to run, so it went up to from 26 to 30, it just came out today.
2: There was one candidate whose name escapes me at the moment, who is openly gay, and he applied to run, but the electoral commission rejected his candidacy, and also a group of eighteen. LGBT groups also denounce him. What was the story there? Do you know?
3: Yes. So, Munir Batur is the founder of NGO called Chems. It's an NGO that, so the first NGO actually that uh, works on LGBTQ rights in Tunisia. But like you just said, a large number of other NGOs from Tunisia, but also from other parts of the region of the Middle East and North Africa or the Arab world. To be more specific, they started a petition to denounce his candidacy. And in the petition, they insisted on several points. The first one was that they said that he doesn't represent the community because of his sexual practices. His a pedophile. He was jailed for pedophily, not for being gay, even though the Tunisian law until now Consider that heterosexual relation, whatever, between a man and a man or a woman and a woman is illegal, but he was jailed for another reason. The second thing is that even his practices within the LGBTQ community are considered as a threat. So in the sense that, for example, when someone from the community asks for help or something, he tends to, he doesn't keep that as a secret within the community. He tends to make that public. And in an environment where it's not easy to live with such a sexual identity, it becomes a threat. So they denounced his candidacy. And even more than that, they even said that his political views are regarding Israel as are problematic and as an intersectional community that considered that we shouldn't focus only on LGBTQ rights, but also on other issues. He does not represent the community and he runs as Munir Batu, not as the representative of the Tunisian-Algyptian community. So there was wide media coverage, especially in the international media for his candidacy. But like you said, his candidacy was rejected because of the incompletion of the files. So in order to run, you have to submit a specific number of documents, including the signature of at least 10 MPs, 10,000 citizens, and he failed to submit that. So that's why his currency was rejected.
2: Very interesting. Nonetheless, making history, I think, for an Arab country or even Muslim country to have an openly gay person run for president, it's it's quite remarkable. It indicates
3: a certain level of
2: tolerance that's really interesting.
3: Exactly. Keep on going. that sense, yeah, it is good that there is a tolerance at least to that, but to make clear that the law until now didn't change, even though there was a former minister of justice who wanted to change it, but he was dismissed, and Bijal at the time opposed the amendment of the law. He said, I'm quoting him, he said, on my dead body, <laughs> I wouldn't change the penal code. And this was, I think, in... It was a few years ago, but when Biji Qadimsi was present at that time.
2: What was the proposed law about?
3: To change the uh, penal code to take out this article that goes back to the colonial era. Actually, the whole penal code goes back to the colonial era, and to stop making it illegal.
2: There are two women candidates, as we mentioned. One of them, Abir Musi, is a staunch supporter of longtime dictators in Abidin Ben Ali. Is there still a sizable constituency of people who overtly support the discredited former dictator?
3: Yes, unfortunately. So, <laughs> And she's quite popular, I would say. That's why, I mean, in comparison, especially with the other candidate, Lumi, Selma Lumi is not popular at all, the other female candidate, but Abir Moussi, she was the vice president of the RCD, the vice secretary general of Ben Ali's party. And she's Playing on a certain nostalgia that emerged, I think, after 2014 or at least after the first years, after the revolution, so there was a period of time when everyone was expecting the new elite to make the country in a better situation economically, but they failed to do that. So in terms of legal and institutional reforms with the new constitution and a large number of laws adopted since 2011. The political system was successfully democratized, but the economy went worse. So the currency, the dinar, lost its value more than 30% in the last, at least, what I remember is the last since 2015. It lost 30 percent, and even more if you go we go back 2011. Same thing for uh, the inflation, permanent high inflation that the government failed to reduce. So people think of the period of Ben Ali. They remember their financial and economic situation, and the Ben Ali, and they think that it was better. And the, and so as a result. Maybe going back to a dictatorship will be better. Maybe we'll just solve the economic problems. That's what a lot of people think. But she has another type of supporters. She's also supported by people who are radically against the existence of an Islamist political party. And they think that Nahda is behind terrorist attacks and behind the organization of the uh, networks of uh, foreign fighters who went uh, to fight in ISIS in Syria. So she's claim or she at least she wants to sue them, at least, if not ban them. And many people think that this is something good and they are supportive. So yes, it's acts to answer to your question in one sentence. Uh, yes, it's actually common. I wouldn't say that the majority is like that, but there is a significant proportion of the Tunisian society who feels nostalgic to the Ben Ali era. But not because of Ben Ali himself, but because of how life was for them easy, at least economically.
2: But she's not the only one among the candidates who are perceived or possibly actually in actuality continuators of the Ben Ali regime. I mean, we have... Nidaz Tunis, for example, is largely comprised of people who were there before Ben Ali was ousted. Give us a brief sketch of some of the main candidates who are trying to succeed the Qaeda Sipsi and what they stand for, roughly.
3: Well, I'm going to start with what seems to be the most popular one, who is Nabil Qarwi. We can consider him from the Ben Ali era, even though he was not a party member, but he played a key role in the electoral campaign of 2009 of Ben Ali. He was supporting him widely. He used his TV channel, which was at the time one of the very few TV channels authorized by private TV channel authorized by the regime of Ben Ali. And later on, he was he integrated in the Tunis party founded by Beji Sipsi and left. And now he's starting his own party uh, using also his charity foundation. So he's mobilizing, basically constructed a political machine with two, two arms, the uh, charity foundation that basically tried to buy the votes of individuals. He focused mainly on people who are over 40, I would say, or 50, 40 years old, and in the interior regions from very low income. This is his target, which is an important section of the society. Uh, and the second one is his TV channel. He has Silvio Berlusconi as a shareholder. Yes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. I was
2: going to make that analogy to Berlusconi. He's actually involved with him because exactly. this is the Italian model of uh, statesman slash media mogul that we're looking at with Nabil Karwe. He owns the broadcast
3: channel Nisma, right? Yes, exactly. He owns the broadcast channel and he uses it to attack his political opponents and also to promote his own image, even though it's illegal. The Tunisian law on regulation of media prevents anyone from using a media platform to promote the image of its owner. This is one of the many reasons why there has been tensions between the TV channel, between Nesmaa, and the independent authority or the regulation of the audiovisual media sector. So uh, this is the first one, Nabil Karwi, He's the most popular one. The second one, so I'm ranking them according to the polls that were published before the beginning of the the campaign. didn't start yet, but the last polls, let's say, even though they are not 100% reliable. So what's roughly uh, his percentage there? His a bit above 20%. Hmm. So he can make it probably to the second round. The second one is Qais Sa'id. Qais Sa'id is very interesting. Qais Sa'id is a university professor of uh, constitutional law. And he became a public figure during the constitutional drafting process. He was commenting and critiquing the process. And he was... As far as I know, he was never a member of political party. He was actually critiquing the whole political elite since he became public figure. And until now, he doesn't have a political machine. He doesn't have a political party. He's not a member of any organization that backs him. Even in the media, he's not that mentioned but his level of popularity remains high and really interesting. Uh, I mean, there is no, until now, no rigorous academic research that would explain that. But I think his personality as someone who is critic of the political elite... So he can be seen as an anti-system person. Some people put him as populist. I would say probably the word populist is not necessarily the best way to describe him. But he has a very interesting, I I don't necessarily agree on on his ideas, but he has an interesting project. He wants to push the democratization even further and develop a system of governance that goes from the bottom, from the very small localities, to the national level I don't think he would be able to do it but many people are supporting him I think the fact that he doesn't have a political party doesn't really represent a threat to the democratization process, he's not ideological, so for some reason it would be really interesting to investigate why he has, he's very popular but he is definitely popular, so here's the second one. Then there is uh, Yusuf Sheehan he used to be in the party of Bijal Qaytsebsi, he's in the 50s, I think. He was prime minister. Prime minister, yes. exactly, prime minister. And he actually just decided today, a few hours ago, to delegate all his powers to one of his ministers to focus on the election. He created his own party. He split it from Bijal Qaytsebsi's party after a conflict with the president. This is very his recent,
2: followers. right? Within past year or so, he split from... Qayt his party and create his own party.
3: Exactly. And there is another minister, another member of the government who is running and who is from the foreign regime, Karim Izbidi, who is currently Minister of Defense. So he didn't resign, he didn't suspend his, transfer his power or anything like uh, she had did. And he doesn't, have, he doesn't belong to any political party. He was able to submit his candidacy after getting the support of, and the signature of 10 MPs from Nidia Tunis and from the party of Yusuf Shehid, Tahya Tunis. He was, and the Ali, he, he had few position. He was not, for a short period of time, he was not the leading politician or leading figure of RCD. Actually, people, when people talk about him, they don't really mention his experience and the Ali. But it's important to mention that he was also Minister of Defense during the Troika period. It means during the th- first years after the revolution when, the country was ruled by the um, coalition of al the main Islamist party, with two parties that are usually described as secular, party of the former president, Mons Marzouqi, and the party of the former head of the parliament, Monserh bin Jafar. So during that period of time, the country had and saw a wave of terrorist attacks that was unprecedented, even though there was few... Problems with terrorism and the People tend to forget that he was uh, he was the uh, Minister of Defense at that time, so they think that he's able to guarantee a certain level of stability in the securityarian sense. Even though uh, yes, some of the worst
2: is. attacks happen. On his watch. The, Under him.
3: The, exactly.
2: The, the, two exactly. Major, the two major political opponents who were killed on his watch, I think.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's difficult to blame him at that time. But people who are concerned about security, I think it's kind of contradiction. If you want him to, if you think that he's tough, because the minister of defense, at the same time, you should also recognize that he failed to prevent this kind of thing. So it's complicated and it's not really clear. His level of polarity is not really clear because he was not in the polls until July, and in July it was only 2%. Now I think he's trying to, I don't know how far he can go. So we'll see. So another promised to have a candidate. Nahda, which would... for our
2: listeners, Nahda is the Islamist party, the main Islamist party in Tunisia, usually referred to in the West as quote-unquote moderate Islamist party.
3: Yeah, or quote-unquote Muslim Democrats or something like that. Right, right.
2: And, and they were pants? in power for a period of a year or two after mm-hmm. the revolution.
3: Yes, but it, depend, it depends on what you mean by they were in power, because some people even in Nahda would say, right. yes, but other people would say that Nahda is in power even now, and since twenty eleven, since the election of 2011 never left, it because they, had the, they are now the biggest political party in the parliament and they were the biggest party of the parliament during the previous legislative mandate. Uh, even more than that, they participated to all governments. We didn't see, except the, the uh, Mahdi Zuma government of 2014. So I wouldn't say that, that now they are not in power. So enough that this time, and I think this is the f- very first time in the history of the Islamist movement in Tunisia, since it was created in the, in the early seventies, at the time, it was called uh, Jamal Islamian, and then the movement of um, the Islamic tendency and then became Haqq al So they participated the first election. They participated in the election in '89, uh, and then there was a crackdown on them, and they were banned. they won the elections of 2011 of the National Council Assembly. They were the second, the last election in 2014, and now this is the very first time that they present a presidential candidate. So it was not really easy for them to choose someone who would be accepted by the elite, by the national elite, and also accepted at the international level. So there was a debate between either supporting someone who is outside, who is not from the party, someone who is running, like for example, Yusuf Echeid, there was a debate about this, whether they should support Yusuf Shihad or no, they end up deciding not to support anyone from the outside the party, and they presented Abdel Fattah Mourou. He was even co-founder of the first Jama'at Islamiyah. The character of Abdel Fattah Mourou is very interesting because he's been in and out the party historically. He left the party in the mid-90s after tension that rose between him and the party. He denounced the use of violence by the party, and the party felt that he betrayed them. So in 2011, when the party ran, it was not part of Nahda in 2011, he ran on his own and he couldn't make it. In 2014, he was able to reintegrate formally the party and to get a seat in the parliament and became the vice president of the of the parliament. And now he's the, he's the acting, the head of the parliament. Abdel Fattah Mourou's background is also important to mention. And like most of Nahda's leaders and bays and voters. He comes from what we call a Beldi family. Family from the urban center of Tunis, from Andalusian descent. In other words, an aristocratic family. An aristocratic not bourgeois. They are not rich. But they have a certain status that allows them to be closed from the rest of the elite. For example, Beijkait Sibsi. Comes from the same neighborhood as uh, Abdel Fattah Mourou. Abdel Fattah Mourou went to the same elite schools as Caid Sipsi. He went to the Sadiqi College, Madrasa Sadiqiya, well known high school where Mustaf bin minister went. He studied both at the, at the Law School of Tunis and the uh, Zaytuna. And he was a judge in the seventies, which is which, is, which was not very common at that time. So he's someone who can be trusted by non-Islamists, and that's what Nahda is trying to do. It's trying to present someone who would not be as controversial as Ranushi, for example. Ranushi who's the
2: head, who's the historical head of the party.
3: Yeah, and also that's why also Ranushi is running in the legislative election. So he. They want him to be the head of the parliament, and at the same time to have uh, Abdulfatah Muru as the head of as the, the president. So Muru's chances are, I think, they are high if he make it to the second round, but it's not guaranteed. He has the first round will be very competitive. Until now, enough that it didn't really deploy. I would say its political machine and all its force to push for. For his candidacy, so I think we'll have to wait September to see if he, his popularity goes up. So he would be in the second round, the kind of vote utile, which is a term that has been used, the, the useful vote. It's an expression that was used by Nidia Tunis in 2014 to to get the support. They, they promised that to reduce artists to counterbalance Nahda.
2: Yeah, that's uh, an interesting concept you bring. Vote utile in French means. Politically realistic vote, just like here in the United States, whenever you have a uh, somebody like Bernie Sanders versus, say, Biden, some people might vote, vote for Biden, not be- because they agree with Biden, but because
3: they feel it's more realistic. So that's what the vote well, is so I think it would be more then. in the second round. For mm. example, if you have in the presidential election, not in the primary, the presidential mm. election, you have, for example, Biden and you have Trump, let's say. And people, for example, from DSA, they don't like Biden. For them, the vote utile would be Biden because he's the only one who can counterbalance Trump.
2: Right. So this is
3: what vote utile means. Same thing in in France, Le Pen versus Macron. It it really means Uh,
2: voting with your head rather than your heart.
3: Voting for what you feel is more realistic. To save what can be saved, voting against someone, not voting for someone not to support him, but against someone to vote against someone so that's what I was saying if muru make it for example against karwi in the second round many people will vote for him not because they like him or because they are supportive of nahda or anything but because they don't want nabil karwi to win well i think we still have to wait to see if he is really able to make it to the second round or no because there are unpublished polls that I don't think they are one hundred percent reliable once again, but it, it's not that easy, let's say, to just make it to the second round. The one that really can guarantee his and have their high chance the first round is Nabil Karwi. Otherwise all the others have to work hard during the next few weeks to make it. So
2: to recap, the the most likely candidate so far to make it the second round is ne- Nabil Karwi, the businessman and Media mogul. Exactly. Well, then you have Abdul Krim you have Yusuf Shehad, the former Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Are they all about yes. 20% or I mean what
1: no, no?
3: The only one who is about 20% is uh, is, uh Qarwi. Qarwi. all then, the others are way below him. Kaiser Said is closer, still far. He's I think the only one who's above ten percent.
2: And he, you said, doesn't have any identifiable ideology. He's just seen as somebody charismatic and anti-establishment. He gets support from people who are not in the elites, who are from the the eastern part of the country.
3: No, I didn't say the eastern part of the country. When I talk about elite, I'm not talking about the east versus the coast. No, I'm talking about like the upper classes, let's say, whatever it is. Socially, means aristocratic, the old established aristocratic family or established in, this, in the urban centers of Tunis for centuries. Right. And at the same time, business owners, big business owners. This is what I call the elite. The rest is not the elite.
2: Right. So say, those would be more inclined to go with Nabil Karwi or Abir Musi or Yusuf Shahad versus Kais Aid, who appeals more to to the rest of the country. Uh, I
3: wouldn't divide it in that way. I don't think that the the elite has one candidate. I think Muru is more accepted by the elite, but he needs the votes of another. Of course, the elite is small, it's a few percent, it's no more than five percent of the population. So mm. If someone wants to become a president, he needs the vote of the masses. Hmm. So all of them are trying to get votes from the masses. And that just have this problem of acceptance within the elite, that's why they presented someone who is from this very specific social environment, not someone else, not Ghanoushi or Ayla Aray, the world's former minister of interior. And for the rest, it's divided, depending on many factors. And I think it's much more the political opinion of individuals rather than their belonging to a certain social and economic category except probably for Beth, because he's focusing on a very specific like for example young people who are in the 20s are not voting for Karwi. he's targeting people who are able to sell their votes or who are willing even in polls a few months ago you can see how he has a certain geographical focus. There is, yes, in more in the interior region than in the coast, but more specifically, older people are like in elderly, fifty plus, and very low income. Even the level of education is low. So a certain niche that represents an important section of the population. That's why I don't think he can go further than his twenty-five percent, for example he will have really, it will be difficult for him in the second round.
2: That's why some people have been tempted to call him the populist as opposed to the others who are who are more identified with the old elites.
3: Even the others, like for example, Abir Moussi, she is also considered to be an entire elite, but she's against the current elite. Mm.
2: Another candidate who's quite prominent but hasn't been mentioned so far, it looks like he's not on the radar, is Munsaf Marzugi, who was president, mm-hmm. uh, um, mm-hmm. right after the revolution. What about him? Does he have broad appeal, or is he just negligible in terms
3: of, of his chances? I think his chances are not that high, let's say. Even people who were with him in 2014, who were in his party or his campaign, are not supporting him. They are supporting another candidate, actually, if we forgot, uh, Mohammed Abu, a centrist, cent- a bit left, Political party that is focusing its discourse on corruption and fighting corruption, and transparency, A really centrist party. So I would say an important part of the bureaucratic state centred elite state officials would vote for for someone like him. But also his chances are not that high. So uh, uh, Mohammed Abu in 2011 he was in the same party as as the Mustafa uh, The party split had was split into three three groups, and now they are divided. The one who is more accepted is the Abu now. But at the same time, most Marzuki preserve a certain level of popularity, but not enough to have serious chances to get to the second round.
0: That is Khalil Bendib speaking with Tunisian scholar Mohamed Hammami, about the political landscape in Tunisia and the country's upcoming presidential elections. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: Since the revolution in 2011, the media in Tunisia have enjoyed increased, if not uh, by any means, complete freedom. What is the role of the mass media in these elections? Are they generally favoring one segment of the ideological spectrum or another? What's the media landscape like right now?
3: So, the mass media, you don't include uh, social media in the mass media, right?
2: Well, I don't think of social media because I'm sort of from a previous generation, but that's also a very interesting question. So, let's talk yes. first about traditional media, then about social media.
3: Yes, so in terms of traditional media, there, there are state-owned media who don't support anyone. There is Nabil Qarwi, who owns Nisma, and there is Zaytuna TV, they are supporting another. Both Nisma and Zituna TV don't have legal authorization for activities because they didn't respect certain regulations. So, but they are still broadcasting. So these are they clearly are supporting someone. Regarding the others, there is a TV channel called Tesia. They try to support Yusuf Sheh to a certain extent. It's not that visible, but can be felt. And Al Hiwar who who is rather attacking Yusuf Ashia, the current prime minister, than supporting him. So I don't think that anyone is dominating the whole TV scene except Qarwi, because he has his own TV channel. But social media is, I think really important in Tunisia. The competition on social media is very, shouldn't be neglected. So political parties are investing in ads. And people are endorsing candidates on social media. It's very active. It have Not only active, but it even has an influence on the political sphere. So I can give you a very simple example. Recently, some people found out that Yusuf Shehid, just decided to give up his French citizenship. No one knew that he has the French citizenship, and he decided to to renounce it. So there was a, first of all, the information came up in the social media, everyone started talking about it, and then it was transmitted to the conventional media. So in terms of agenda setting, who sets the debate, social media are very influential. It gives also, it helps to see the level of popularity of certain actions or how are they are seen by the masses. But no one is dominating it again. So mm. it is very fragmented. We don't really have someone who is dominant. That's why I think that no one has high level of popularity as Nabil Karwi.
2: In terms of the economics, the IMF factor and all that, who among these major candidates is is more leaning towards a classic... Washington consensus, neoliberal economics, and who might be actually slightly uh, opposed to that? Or, Or are they all on the same page, the major candidates?
3: Well, we'd say most of them are on the same page, but it's important to mention that the president in Tunisia doesn't have prerogatives related to economics. The president's power are only limited to international relations in the conventional sense and defense. Only. Mm. Even economic cooperation and the IMF agreement is signed by the governor of the central bank and the minister of the finance, for example. So it's more the prime minister who takes the decision. In 2013, it was Hamad Yishbeli who took the decision. Um, Marzuki was at that time not supportive of the IMF agreement, for example. At the time, the constitution was not ready yet, but we're still the same type of distribution of powers. So the president doesn't have that much to say in terms of economic policies. But it's important to mention that in terms of ideas of reforms, most of political parties usually present the same set of ideas. They are not necessarily neoliberal in their framing, but they don't break out of that school of thought. Neoclassical economics, all of them are talking about macroeconomic orthodoxy, like all of them with no exceptions, as a goal in itself. Growth, not development, an approach to uh, economic policy. They are, Of course, they claim that they are pro-poor, but it was never reflected in the policies, and even in when you read... I'm based on what these parties previously presented. I didn't see their program yet, except NAFTA because Nahda presented the philosophy of its economic program, which is, doesn't break at all with, with what the Tunisia did since the late 80s, the idea of incentives for foreign investors, reducing subsidies, marketization of the economy, the same narrative, same language, same orientation. And I think this is mainly due to the intellectual repression that happened and the Ben Ali. And Ibn Ali, the debate on economic issues was totally, I would say, not formally banned, but there was self-censorship. Until now, we don't, for example, have a political economy programs in Tunisian universities. So there is a reproduction of the same ideas that emerged in the 80s in a depoliticized way, just teaching them as equations, as simple truth. So... The debate usually is about how to do things, not what to do. There are some political parties would be more open about, for example, cutting fuel subsidies. Others would try to, to reduce the pace. But overall, there is... Within the party political elite, I'm focus on party because it's, political elite can also include as a labor union, which is very important. Actor. Right.
2: Well, that was my next uh, question. I want to ask you about that. But within the parties, there's not much dissension. E- when we hear about economic reforms, people are talking about the IMF's <laughs> reforms <laughs> towards yes. austerity, if anything, rather than social justice or any such thing.
3: Yes. Even in their ideals, social justice is part of their ideals, but they don't know how to reach that goal. We are no longer in the generations of the 70s, 80s who grew up. I mean, even now, I mean, to be honest, in the U.S., when we see the debate between the different factions of the Democratic Party versus the Republicans, there is at least a debate. That debate doesn't exist in Tunisia. In terms of ideals, I think the ideals of Tunisians can be more radical, but in terms of policy and how things should be done, it doesn't exist. So that's why the reforms are not being implemented. Even the laws, like the IMF or the World Bank, conditionalities include the adoption of specific laws. The laws are adopted and passed by the parliament, but then there is a resistance for the implementation at the level of the bureaucratic apparatus of the state. Bureaucrats don't enforce the the decisions. They slow it down. At the end, it will end up implemented. But there is a big divide between what people want and how they can reach that, how they can build. Because of the, the term, the monopoly of the economic thought in Tunisia, there is one thought. There is no diversity in terms of understanding of how the economy, uh, the, uh, the economy functions. So everyone is suggesting the same policies.
2: So there's groupthink. We're still stuck in the late 1990s. You were talking about the UGTT, the largest union organization in Tunisia and has had a traditionally important role to place ever since independence. Tell us a little bit what UGTT is doing Is it trying to pull things a little bit towards workers' rights? What is it doing exactly? And is it leaning towards any candidate uh, in this presidential
3: election? So in terms of workers' rights, that's the role of UGDT. As a union, as a labor union, it defends the right of the workers, but also it sees itself as a national organization. So they have also sort of nationalist narrative in the sense that they... Claim that they are defending the interests of the nation in general, so they don't necessarily focus only on the life of workers. They get involved in discussions on economic policies that are not directly related to workers, but indirectly. Until now, they were not a force of proposition, of suggestion of new policies, but rather an institution of resistance. So they would block the implementation of the reforms, like I said earlier. The government needs their approval to make certain decisions. Even the IMF goes and negotiate with them in, when it comes to, for example, the reform of what we call the social security funds, the funds of retirement, two big funds in Tunisia state-owned. One is for the people who work in the private sector and the other people in the, in the public sector, so both of, our of them are running deficit and the IMF is trying to push for certain reform of, of retirement the, and the UGT is playing a big role in organizing the resistance. But interestingly, recently they said that they are preparing a, a new program and we didn't see it until now. They promised to publish in June. They didn't publish until now. Probably they are waiting for the legislative election or they are changing their strategy. But the idea was to prepare a program, to put it on the table and to back political parties who are willing to take it. This was the idea in the beginning. Now, they recently announced something else. They said that they sent a survey or a questionnaire to all political parties and candidates. It's a question of 100 questions. To know what are their economic orientation and they promised to take a side based on the result of that survey. What I think will happen after the election is a big confrontation between the government and the next government and the UGDT. The balance of power will be different. The government wouldn't need a high level of popularity just after the election. So they, we might see a certain level of, confrontation and i don't know how it will look like but it's highly expected because the imf and the world bank both to be honest they are not the only ones there are also internal actors who are pushing for the same forms more pro business than favor of social justice so i think we will see a certain confrontation between both it will depend also on who will win Nabil Qari, for example, even though now he's claiming to be closer to the people, from what I know, people who are backing him, businessmen who are working with him and funding him, they recognize that, or at least they think that UJD is the major barrier to the development of the economy, so they are ready and they are expecting to enter in a confrontation after the election. If, Of course, if he wins, but it's not guaranteed. At the same
2: time, over the past few years, there have been increasing pressure coming from the bottom up, from rest of Tunisian workers throughout the country. How is that affecting things?
3: There are The number of strikes has been increasing continuously since 2011. In terms of social tensions, it's actually, the revolution doesn't represent the, uh, the peak, but it's rather starting point of a growing movement of contestation. And it's basically every day you have different sectors that are organizing strikes, but you have issue-focused movements, like, for example, El Camor. Al Camor is in the south. It was a major movement organized by local people without any former backing. No, they were not backing, but any former organization, and they were asking for their right to benefit from the oil revenue that was generated from the governor at they were living in Tatawin, in the south. So Tatawin is the biggest governor in Tunisia. It's in the south. It's the, the governor where we have the highest number of oil companies. I mean, Tunisia is not an oil-rich company, it's in, but we, there is still some production. And they were asking for to benefit for the local development in terms of Investment, public investment in productive project that will create uh, jobs and others hiring, and the, they wanted to be hired in the oil sector. There were several demands, and in the discourse you will find even radical demands, like for example the nationalization of the natural resources. This is an expression that came up several times, but it, it was not the priority. It was not the main goal. Because they think that this is a national issue, not an issue that this only a small community or part of the country should fight for. So uh, there was also another movement called the Manishan Semah movement. Bejiqaid, the former president, wanted and he succeeded in passing a law that gives legal immunity to people who committed acts of corruption and financial crimes under the former regime. More specifically, public officials or people who are linked to the state in a way or another. We have an expression called a semi-public official. There was a movement that was opposing this law. It didn't really succeed. And uh, there are other environmental localized movements against the exploitation of phosphate, against the exploitation of shale gas, against, so there is a continuous vibration at the bottom of the pyramid, if we think of it in that way. The bottom-up pressure that makes you feel that there is a change that needs to be done and not a simple uh, institution change in the, in the, in the liberal sense. Uh, but a more radical one, and the elite is not responding to that, and they're just trying to calm them. For example, in Kamarit, there was some negotiation. They recruited some people to invest some money in the region. They didn't. That's why the tensions are arising, and that's why also we see the rise of people, populist people like Nabil Karwi, who are presenting themselves as anti-system, even though they are part of the system.
2: You just uh, touched on very briefly one major complaint. About Ben Ali's regime was the widespread corruption, which was choking the economy. Ostensibly, there's been some crackdown against it, against certain public figures over the past few years. How much progress has been made, in your opinion, since Ben Ali's departure?
3: Good question. Well, since Ben Ali's departure, you can say that there was some progress because the assets of his family were confiscated. But a large number of individuals who were involved in corruption were not sued, others were and ended up being protected by the law that was proposed by Biaz yeah. and passed by the current parliament. But I think you're talking about the war on corruption that was started by Yusuf in recently. Yeah. He arrested a few people, not that many. Some of them were released. Others are still in jail without sentence. So that's why it's seen as more... A campaign to eliminate certain actors that are problematic for him, uh, like Shafir Zaraya, for example, who was, he's a businessman. He has some activities in the informal sector, and he was accused of threat to national security or something like that, formally. But it was presented as a part of his war on corruption. He was the enemy of Yusuf Shehid, and he was getting involved in politics, so he arrested him. And now he's not. He was not sentenced to anything. Others were released. So I would say under the current the current government, we didn't see that much. But at least at the level of the institutions, we, there was few. There was some progress in terms of, for example, the creation of a specific branch of the court of Tunis in charge of serious financial crimes. It didn't exist under Ben Ali. Recently they decided to freeze the assets of Nabil Karwi who is running for the election because of his involvement in tax evasion and uh, and the money laundering he developed a whole financial scheme to put his money in Luxembourg and this is I'm talking here about Nabil Karwi who is running for the presidency so there were some institutions, but when people talk about corruption, we shouldn't also see it in the legal sense of breaking the law. But people sometimes use it to just to describe something as rotten, something as bad, dysfunctioning. Uh, so when they talk about the the corruption that increased after the revolution, they use the word in Arabic "fasad," which that has a different connotation than. Then corruption is more, more something that is immoral. Hmm,
2: yeah,
3: exactly. Hmm. So I did some work on anti-corruption, but now I'm skeptical of the discourse of anti-corruption in Tunisia as being the the main problem. Like, for example, the party of uh, Mohamed Abou, are democratic. The <coughs> they are focusing on corruption. I mean, it's good. It's not, I wouldn't say that's something bad to fight corruption, but it's not the major problem of Tunisia, I would say. I think it's usually overemphasized. I don't think that the the first priority of the next government will be fighting corruption. And uh, we can see it even in polls. A few years ago, we saw that it was a priority. It was defined by Tunisians as a priority. Now they think more of economic reforms as a priority because you can think of corruption as an uh, indigenous effect that is created by, for example... The high level of inflation and the, the salaries that are must frozen, so people would find themselves obliged to get to ask for for price. Basically, the the reason why the police or what's called petty corruption, corruption that is committed by small blue-collar workers, not the white-collar crimes. Actually, even the legislation on white-collar crimes in Indonesia is not that developed. So we're not talking here about suing big businessmen like Nabil Karwi and putting them in jail, it technically didn't really happen. Except people who were arrested in the first wave after the revolution. That was not a
2: negligible amount because you the family, the trouble I think, family. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the yes. The in laws were basically taking a percentage out of every major contract or most major contracts. Yeah, percent. it's so, well, so that, not that really
3: major con- mm-hmm. contracts. It was not only contracts only. Actually, I'm, I'm working on this topic and doing research on this topic and I'm working on the database of the confiscation committee. So they, they actually, they own businesses. Some of them, yes, were relying on contracts and getting bribes on the contracts, but they developed companies and they had many partners in businesses, shareholders of their companies. The Trabilsi arrested because he is linked to the president, but his partner in business is not arrested and his assets are not confiscated, even though normally they should be confiscated. Many people were linked and benefited from the regime and they escaped the confiscation process. Mm. We have even his son-in-law, Maroum Mabrouk, son-in-law of Ben Ali, his assets were never confiscated, even though his name was on the list of the confiscation. And more recently, uh, Youssef Shehid, the current prime minister, asked the European authorities to unfreeze his assets in France. Oh yeah. yeah, and yeah. There was a big debate about it here. Mm. So, and even there were leaks, documents leaked, because in the beginning they denied it and said, no, we didn't influence the decision of the European uh, authorities. But then the documents were leaked and they proved that he was actually uh, behind it. Um, and this is the this is the son-in-law of Ali, another uh, others were not arrested there are one of them is in France the other one is in Seychelles. Um, ben Ali and his wife are in Saudi Arabia um, so the major so I think they they were the uh, it's uh, I, I don't know if it's uh, if it's controversial or not, to say that they were also kind of the only victims of the confiscation process, because uh, many other people were involved in much higher level of corruption, and they were not, and they were not sued at all, because they had ties with the past revolution elites. Some people, for example, promised investments since January 2011 and the government of Birgit Qai at the time, he was prime minister, uh, sorry, in February. He became prime minister in February 2011. They thought that these businessmen are useful because promising investments in the interior regions can calm down the population. So they protected these individuals. I wouldn't say that the corrupt business elite that was developed under Ben Ali was dismantled during the revolution. No, but a big part of it remained and uh, succeeded in surviving.
0: Mohamed Hammami is a U.S.-based Tunisian scholar. We reached him in Tunis. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.